Welcome to the podcast of the Notre Dame Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. I'm Philip Munoz, the Center Director. The Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government here at Notre Dame aims to explore the fundamental principles and practices of a free society so that citizens and civic leaders are equipped to secure our God-given natural rights, exercise the responsibilities of self-government, and pursue the common good. For more information about the Center, including our events, visit us on the web at constudies.nd.edu. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome, everyone. It's, uh, it's wonderful to see everyone. Uh, it's especially wonderful to be together here uh, in person. It seems like a long time since we've been together. So it's terrific to see you and to be able to see your faces. And thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, my name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. Uh, on behalf of my colleague Matt Hall, the director of the Rooney Center, it's our pleasure uh, to welcome you to today's event, our first of the year. Uh, and it's just a terrific way to start the school year. Uh, we have a wonderful panel, uh, a very important book that's just been published. Um, this is actually the first event of the Center for, our first in-person event for the uh, Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. Uh, it's a new college center. Uh, very thankful to Dean Mastillo for recognizing us as a college center. Uh, the center seeks to cultivate uh, thoughtful citizens uh, to foster research on all sorts of matters uh, related to uh, constitutional government. So we'll be doing lots of things uh, this fall. We have two major events you're certainly welcome to, uh, a lecture by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, that's on September 16th. Uh, so next month, uh, so that will be a big event for us, uh, as you might imagine. And then we're, ha we're hosting a scholarly conference on uh, the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Uh, and the keynote address for that is a very distinguished Princeton histori uh, historian. Um, uh, so that will be in late uh, October. So please join us uh, next month for uh, Justice Thomas and then for our conference on the Reconstruction uh, Amendments. Uh, we just have, as I said, a terrific event today. I just read uh, Secular Surge uh, over the last uh, few days, and it's really um, uh, an important uh, book uh, and, a, and a very good book. Um, let me, I'd be remiss. I, I, I'm compelled to announce the COVID policies for the university. I, sorry, I should have done this beginning, and let me just read this. Um, all visitors to campus, uh, regardless of vaccination st uh, status, are expected to wear masks inside campus buildings, uh, except when eating and drinking. Uh, of course, anyone who would prefer to wear a mask is certainly welcome uh, to do so. Um, Professor Lewis, uh, there's a policy for visiting speakers. Um, uh, if vis our visiting speakers have been vaccinated, uh, they don't have to wear it. So, uh, Andy, you're, you're free to do as you please. Um, let me uh, thank the staff of the Rooney Center, especially Claudia, and then my own staff, Jen and, and Soren and Amy. Um, it's a lot of work getting all the lunches together. We have lots of lunches, so any of you who are extra hungry, take one. Uh, and the graduate students take one uh, as you as you uh, as you leave. Okay, we we I, I let me let's get to it because we have a very distinguished panel. Um, I actually uh, uh, rewrote uh, my introductions for them because if I if I actually read you the bios of all of our panelists, we'd we'd actually never get to the panelists themselves. So uh, very briefly. Um, we have uh, Scott Appleby, the Maryland Keough Dean of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, professor of history. Uh, his scholarly focus is uh, on global religion. Uh, Dean Appleby is the author or editor of, of more than 15 books. Um, 
uh, and is you know, one of our leading lights here at Notre Dame. Uh, Eileen Hunt, a political theorist whose scholarly interests cover modern political thought, feminism, family, uh, the rights, uh, ethics of technology, uh, philosophy, and literature. Uh, she's been on an extraordinarily scholarly tear of a read. I, I might be wrong on this. I think it's five authored or edited books in the last five years. Um, recently, uh, a very good book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein. Is that UPenn Press? If I remember? And that was last year? Yeah. Okay. And then Andy Lewis, uh, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, he researches the area of uh, religion and politics and church-state. Uh, uh, an excellent book uh, he published a few years ago, The Right's Turn in Conservative Christian Politics, How Abortion Transformed the Culture Wars. Um, and that won the APSA Religion and Politics Award, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh, our two uh, authors who we're celebrating today, uh, Dave Campbell, the Packy J.D. <clears throat> Professor of American Democracy here at Notre Dame. Uh, among his num uh, numerous scholarly achievements, uh, he's the co-author of the award-winning book, American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us. And that won an APSA award. Did that win the Book Award as well when it came out? It used to be called the Woodrow Wilson Award. But... <laughs> yeah. No longer. Yeah. No longer. No longer. <laughs> and uh, uh, Jeff Lehman, current department chair of the Department of Political Science, uh, in addition to Secular Surge with uh, Professor Campbell and John Green, he's the author of uh, The Great Divide, Religion and Culture, uh, Cultural Conflict in American Party Politics. He's published in uh, every leading political science journal. And do you still edit Political Behavior? I do. Edits the journal Political Behavior with uh, our colleague, uh, Ben Radcliffe. Um, okay, so the procedure for today is we're going to let our, our, our authors, Dave and Jeff, speak for a few minutes, tell us a little bit about the book. And then we'll have our panelists speak, and we'll just go in alphabetical order. So Dean Appleby, and then Professor Hunt, and then Professor Lewis. And I guess we can give uh, Jeff and Dave a chance to respond to the comments. And then we'll just have Q&A and discussion, which will be moderated uh, by my colleague, Matt Hall. Uh, when you ask your questions, um, maybe Matt, you can bring the microphone around. Um, I know you don't, we don't need the microphone to hear one another, but we uh, do need it for the, uh, for the camera. OK? All right. Thank you. So, um, Dave and Jeff, thank you. Thank you, Philip. Yes, thank you, Philip. Um, I am going to kick off today, so you can think of me as sort of the warm-up act for Jeff. Um, sometimes on a talk show, they'll bring out a stand-up comedian or a magician or sometimes even a trained dog <laughs> to entertain the crowd before the headliner. So you can think of me as playing that role. Um, I should also uh, note that this uh, book we're going to be talking about today is authored by three people, not two, but only two of us are here today. And uh, we'll just acknowledge that John Green, a longtime collaborator of ours, um, was unable to be with us today. Uh, John, while we were writing this book, actually served as the interim president of the University of Akron, and therefore is now in a well-deserved retirement. <laughs> Um, and let me also just extend uh, thanks to uh, Philip and the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government and to uh, Matt and the Rooney Center for hosting us today and to our uh, panelists and especially to Andy who drove all the way from Cincinnati to be here today. Um, not that Dean Appleby didn't have to come a long way as well, <laughs> or, or Eileen for that matter. Um, so I'm just going to talk for a few minutes about um, basically kind of setting the scene for um, some of the themes that we cover in this book. 
uh, secular surge, which we've subtitled A New Fault Line in American Politics. And we actually initially had a question mark on the subtitle, but it turns out academic presses do not like question marks in titles, so we have to take the question mark off. But you can imagine there's a question mark there, because that is actually one of the themes in the book, is that uh, we pose the question of whether or not we are witnessing, with the growth of secularism that we will describe today, also the birth of a new political movement, a secular left that might parallel the religious right. We would not go so far as to say that uh, we would uh, predict that with any certainty, but there are signs that maybe such a thing is growing. So if it does happen, you heard it here first, and if it doesn't, eh, sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. Um, just to get us going here, I'm, I'm going to start with a picture um, that many of you may have seen before or one like it. What this shows you is what we call the rising tide of, of non-religiosity in the country. There are three lines on this graph. This shows you the percentage of Americans who, in a large nationally representative survey, the General Social Survey, report either never attending worship services, that they do not have a religious affiliation, or that they do not believe in God. As you can see, all of these lines have experienced growth since the 1970s. A few other things I want to note here. One is saying you don't believe in God is not the same thing as saying you don't have a religion, which is not the same thing as saying that you never attend religious services. Those are three different things. It's also important to note that this growth, this rising tide of non-religiosity that you see in this figure <clears throat> has an inflection point that comes in the late 1980s, early 1990s, somewhere in that window of time. The reason I highlight that is this is actually a bit of a puzzle, one we do explore in the book, of why would we see this inflection point then? Why is it that we saw the growth of what are often called the nuns, that is N-O-N-E, none, the type of person who says that they do not have a religious affiliation. Why did that start at that point in time and why has it continued? Because this is very different than the trend you see in other countries where there's also been a growth of secularism, but it hasn't happened as suddenly and it hasn't happened with a particular point in time that we can point to as its start. Generally, it happens slowly through a process of generational replacement. <clears throat> Those are the kinds of questions that we're interested in um, exploring in this book. In addition to what it means to say that somebody is not religious. Because I mentioned that you may have seen a graph like this because it's, I think, widely known that there's been a growth in the nuns, as they're often called, or in the lack of religious affiliation. But that's typically where the conversation ends. There's a growth in these people who say they don't have a religion, period. And Jeff, John, and I, uh, now many years ago, got talking about that trend and that phenomenon, and it occurred to us that that was missing what seemed to be a large part of the story with what was happening with the turn away from religion in the United States, that all we were focusing on is what people said they were not, that they did not have a religious affiliation, or they were not attending religious services, or they did not believe in God, without much attention, or really no attention, to what they might be. So one of the fundamental insights that we hope to offer in this book is a distinction between being non-religious, which is simply 
defining people by what they are not. And that's typically what social scientists and pundits have done when they've pointed to this trend, this rise that I just highlighted. They've you know, highlighted what people are not doing or not identifying with. But that is very different than what we call secularism, which we define as what people are. And so much of what we do in this book is introduce and test and hopefully convince the reader that we have measures of secularism that are different and distinct from simply not being religious. What we mean by that is we have a series of questions that we ask people on a number of public opinion surveys that we believe can differentiate between people who have a secular worldview versus those who do not have a secular worldview. I won't go into all of those measures here, although in the Q&A we'll be happy to go into more detail, but just to give you a loose sense of what we mean by this, um, we have a series of questions that ask people about their beliefs and whether or not they derive their beliefs, their worldview, their values from secular sources versus um, religious sources, although importantly, and this is critical to the way we understand these two things, we constructed those questions in such a way that you could be secular and also be religious. And I want to emphasize that because for some people that is a mind-bending idea, that secularism and religiosity are not necessarily opposites. Now, when I put it that way, that might seem kind of strange. Well, either you're secular or you're religious. Until I give you some examples of what we mean by that. It turns out many American Jews fall into this category of somebody who actually has a secular worldview but is nonetheless somewhat religious. They consider themselves being part of a religious community, uh, for example. Um, many mainline Protestants also fall into that category. Even many Catholics do. Not very many evangelicals, hardly any Mormons, hardly any black Protestants. But you do find them in other religious um, traditions. In other words, what we're introducing is this idea that it's possible to see the world through a secular lens and still not be completely disassociated from religion. Although there are other people who are seeing the world through a secular lens and have no interest in religion and other combinations thereof. Which leads me to what is our greatest accomplishment in this book. Every political scientist's dream is to have a two by two table which is what we have, a table that plots people as either high or low in our measure of secularism and then high and low in our measure of what we call non-religiosity, but really is just religiosity flipped around. So all those measures that you may have seen in the past of you know, what makes somebody religious, how often they attend church, how strongly they believe in God, we have all those measures, we just reverse them and call that non-religiosity. And because we have our two-by-two -two table, it enables us to break people into four different categories. Now, there are lots of different ways that I could explain how we got to these categories, and I can give you lots of data on them, but for our purposes today, we thought we might actually do this uh, graphically to show you some pictures of what each of these four groups would be doing on a Sunday morning. We'll start with the group that is probably the most intuitive, the religionists. So these are people who are high in religiosity, that's low in non-religiosity, and they're not very secular at all, okay? These are people that you can probably relate to. These are people that we think of as religious believers. We call them religionists, and so where are they on a Sunday morning while they're in church? And this is a picture of people who are in what appears to be a charismatic type evangelical um, church. The next group, 
<laughs> Probably also somewhat intuitive. This is a group we call the non-religionists, okay? But this is critical. So these are people who are not religious. They do not attend religious services. So our non-religionist on a Sunday morning is sitting there um, watching a football game. We actually recently did a panel with um, Ross Douthat of the New York Times, who actually called us out for this photo. He said that, um, who would be watching a football game on Sunday morning, which is a real, it's an, we pointed out it was East Coast bias because clearly this guy's in California and he's watching a game on the East Coast. Um, so a non-religionist is somebody who is not religious, but this is critical, but also does not have this secular worldview. So they have no religion in their life, but they don't have anything else that might be a substitute for it. The next group are the secularists. These are people who embrace that secular worldview and are not religious at all. So where are they on Sunday morning? Well, it's actually kind of hard to say, right? This is what makes them a difficult group to study. They don't necessarily congregate in any one place, but here they are having brunch. <laughs> Probably talking about the latest New Yorker piece or what they heard on NPR. And they all have tote bags, I can assure you. Our fourth group is the one that I alluded to earlier that is perhaps the most mind-bending for people, and that's this group we call the religious secularists. So these are people who have the secular worldview that we've described, but are still part of a religious community. Um, the church that we've highlighted here is probably an Episcopalian church. They might be Unitarians. There's a pride flag. There's a lot of guitars. Um, <laughs> you, you, you get the idea. When we look at the American population as a whole, this is how these four groups break out. Um, religionists are the single largest group, but not a majority in the US. Followed, and this is a surprise to many, by secularists, followed by the non-religionists, followed by those religious secularists. And I just want to point out that you know, that's kind of an odd group, not one that we maybe have talked about in the past, but they're a non-negligible part of the US population. So with this four-point system, we sort of throughout the book discuss various ways that these groups differ, and in some cases how they're similar in a variety of ways, um, including their political differences. I'm going to turn it over to Jeff. He's going to talk in more detail about those political differences, but I'll just note that this is just sort of an amuse-bouche, if you will, of other things that we cover in the book. We actually look at all sorts of ways that these folks are both similar and different from one another, but we thought we'd talk about the political stuff. Take it away, Jeff. Okay, Th thank you very much, Dave. And, and let me also thank uh, Philip and Matt and the, uh, their centers for putting this on, as well as um, Eileen and Scott, and particularly Andy for coming all this way. Um, I want to bring us home by talking about what this all means for politics. And the short story is that it matters a great deal. Um, these are data from our own 2017 national survey. Um, and it shows you the percentage of each of our four groups that hold various liberal or democratic um, orientations, liberal ideology, identifying themselves as Democrats, being liberal on economic or cultural issues, and then voting for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, and you can see that to understand contemporary American politics, it's really important to distinguish people who are simply non-religious from people who truly embrace secularism. Secularists are far more liberal than non-religionists. 
uh, both in their ideological identification as well as their positions on economic uh, and cultural issues. They are more likely than non-religionists to identify with the Democratic Party, and they were a lot more likely than non-religionists to vote um, for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So, in short, lumping secularists and non-religionists together into one big box of nuns, as we all have, including um, a lot of us on, on this panel, have done in the past, really presents a misleading picture of contemporary uh, American politics. Um, because while non-religionists are pretty moderate and pretty independent, secularists really represent the core of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Um, we also see that, not surprisingly, religionists are the most conservative and the most Republican. Um, and also, I think, showing the power of secularism, the religious secularists, people like me, by the way, I'm an actual religious secularist, and I'm real. I'm an actual person. Uh, those people are, are, are actually a little bit more liberal than uh, non-religionists, a little more democratic, and we're a lot more likely to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, another place where it's really important to distinguish true secularists from non-religionists is in political participation. Our conventional wisdom about the nuns, about non-religious people or secular people, is that they don't really participate in politics. They're civic dropouts. Their non-participation in religion lines up with non-participation in politics and other civic activities. Uh, and that is true for the non-religionists. They were the least likely of all four groups to turn out to vote in the 2016 presidential election. It's not, however, true for secularists. Um, people who embrace secular beliefs and identities, um, they actually are quite engaged in civic life and quite engaged in political life. And they're every bit as likely as the religionists to turn out to vote in 2016. Um, secularism, um, as, as I've sort of um, already suggested, um, is closely related to party politics as well. So what you're looking at here are, again, for the mass identifiers, Democrats and Republicans, that's our 2017 data. Um, and that's juxtaposed here with data from um, surveys that some of us did of um, delegates to the 2016 Democratic and Republican National Conventions. Um, and you can see a really sharp secular religious divide between the two parties both for mass-level Democrats and Republicans, um, or both mass-level Democrats and especially Democratic convention delegates, secularists are the plurality group, overwhelmingly among the convention delegates. Um, for Republicans, religionists are, are the plurality group and, and really overwhelmingly among convention delegates. At the same time, however, there is a potential religious secular divide within the parties. Not as much for the Republicans, but definitely for um, the Democrats. Secularists are ascendant at the mass and elite levels um, of democratic politics, but religionists and non-religionists still represent a substantial part of the party. Um, and this has clear implications for the battle within the Democratic Party 
between the very liberal progressive wing and the pragmatic moderate wing. Secularists really are the core of the progressive wing, whereas religionist Democrats and non-religionists um, are more moderate. Um, and we can see this secular religious, uh, this, this divide within the Democratic Party playing out in terms of preferences for party nominees. This is 2016, Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders. We've seen similar things in terms of Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders in 2020. Um, the religionists within the party were overwhelmingly supportive of Hillary Clinton, as were the non-religionists. Secularists, on the other hand, uh, much more supportive of Bernie Sanders. Um, there also are, um, are some divisions that are important within the Republican Party, not so much secularists versus religionists, because there aren't a lot of secularists in the Republican Party. Um, but we show in the book that the emergence of Donald Trump as kind of the centerpiece of Republican politics um, may have created at least the potential for a divide within the party between religionists and non-religionists. Um, and these are data from a, a survey conducted in January of 2016, the very beginning of the Republican primary process. Uh, and we're looking at the support for Republican religionists and non-religionists for four groups of candidates. One is just Trump, he's a group unto himself. Um, Another is what we call Christian conservatives. That was um, Ted Cruz and Ben Carson. Uh, another group are the establishment candidates, Jeb Bush, John Kasich, Marco Rubio, and then everyone else. Uh, Trump is the plurality choice for both religionists and non-religionists, but he has far more support um, percentage-wise among the non-religionists than he does among the religionists. So early on, <clears throat> Trump's base of support was really people who do not embrace religion, but also do not embrace secularism. So um, we will close with a couple of takeaways. Um, two main takeaways from what we've talked about today. One is that not all secular people are alike. Um, we can distinguish between non-religious people and people who are truly secular and there are clear political differences between those two groups, um, both in policy positions and party ID, as well as in political participation. Second takeaway is that there is clearly a secular religious divide that's becoming embedded in party politics. There's a clear divide between uh, a largely secularist Democratic Party and a largely religionist Republican Party but there are also important divides that this secular surge may be causing within the parties. Uh, within the Democratic Party especially, there's an ongoing divide which will continue for some time, I believe, between secularists on the one hand and religionists and perhaps non-religionists on the other. Uh, and then within the Republican Party, um, perhaps an ongoing divide between religionists and non-religionists. And with that, we will close and turn it over to the discussants. Good, thanks. Um, thank you, Philip, for including me in this conversation and thereby providing me a forcing mechanism to read this important study by David, Jeff, and John. It is an important book. 
So I'll begin my remarks by indicating why I think so and then move on to one methodological question and end with some fanciful, fanciful conjectures that is not empirical in nature. So wherein lies the author's contribution to the literature on secularism? That's the question. Of course, before answering this question, let us recall with affection 30 years' worth of sociological, philosophical, theological, and historical studies of secularization, the secular, and secularism, including monumental studies that together number in the tens of thousands published pages. The mountain peaks overlooking valleys of lesser works include the early genealogical excursions of Talal Assad, who sought to demolish what he considered the artificial and pernicious politically charged reification of the religious and the secular as separate spheres of the life world of modern societies. That's Assad. Next, Jose Casanova's landmark Global Comparative Study, Public Religions in the Modern World, published in 1994, which alerted us to the shaking, if not the shattering, of the theoretical foundations of the secularization thesis, um, courtesy of the rise of the new Christian right in America, the Shiite revolution in Iran, the rise of Hindu nationalism as a potent political force in India, et cetera, et cetera. Those shattered foundations, Casanova pointed out, of the secularization thesis being the confident, even smug prediction, projection that religion under the force of secularization would shrink from the public sphere, become effectively privatized, and eventually decline, even in sociocultural significance. Then, among these kind of mountain peaks, Charles Taylor's truly mon monumental doorstop, <laughs> A Secular Age, which is published in 2007, and it's a touch, uh, touchstone for David and Jeff in the Secular Surge book. And then another 2007 doorstop-sized volume, less prominent but theoretically rich comparative global study, Armando Salvatore's The Public Sphere, Liberal Modernity, Catholicism, Islam, which engages Habermas's seminal notions of transformative communicative action in the public sphere. He does so in order to integrate, interrogate the notion that modern society is in the process of forging a space for collective discourse that mediates between the political and institutional spheres and has its own autonomy. Quoting Armando, bear with me, I seek to discover, quote, the extent to which the public sphere of modern societies is political, namely if there is a degree of autonomy of collective deliberation versus the power of bureaucratic steering and the rationality of capitalist markets in determining the political life of democratic polities. This is also the genuinely Habermasian question of whether there is a close to ground level of interaction and communication that holds society together and bestows a progressive scope onto the social and political process. This is less the question of distinguishing between a political and a non-political public sphere than the issue of ascertaining the nature of the public sphere and of the modalities of communication it facilitates with regards to the wider conception not only of society and the polity, but also of the micro-fundament of the social bond where ego engages alter. In other words, does the public sphere reflect or even constitute a political society, close quote. 
this being one of the most lucid and accessible passages in 293 pages. <laughs> they suggest why Salvatore's impressive but dense study is well less prominent. But it is nonetheless a relevant conversation partner for the final chapters of Secular Surge, which hone in on the relationship between public secularism and political identity and affiliation in the public sphere. Um, and not least in this highly selective litany of relevant previously published works on secular surges in the U.S. and beyond, our own Christian Smith for decades has been contributing mightily to the debates over religion's public relevance in an increasingly secular milieu, beginning with his early breakthrough study of American evangelicals embattled and thriving, which foreshadowed in reverse David and Jeff and John's finding that the aggressive bullying of the religious right has driven a significant portion of Americans into the non-religious category. Smith charted a similar dynamic among evangelicals of the 70s and 80s who were thriving precisely because they were being bullied, they were embattled, they thought, that because they were being put upon by the annoying seculars running the country. So... So what do Messrs. Campbell, Lehman, and Greed add to this decade-long multidisciplinary conversation? Well, they give us a two-by-two -two table. <laughs> Full stop, a two-by-two -two table. As they explain, quote, we follow the credo of political scientists everywhere that anything worth studying can be presented as a two-by-two -two table. Close quote. In multi-authored books, one is never quite sure who wrote what, but that self-aware witticism has all the hallmarks of the Campbellian style. <laughs> In other words, what our authors contribute is a new and fresh interpretive statement accounting for the rapid growth of public and personal secularism in the nation with the soul of a church, as Chesterton described America. The historian Sidney Mead took the phrase as the title of his 1985 history, that attempted to account for American exceptionalism, or so it seemed at that point, in resisting the acids of modernity, which were devouring churches across Christian Europe. More to the point, what I am calling the interpretive statement presented in Secular Surge is supported by, wait for it, real data. In sufficient amounts extracted from two sets of social surveys and qualitative interviews over the last several years, the Secular America Studies is the foundation SAS conducted by the authors beginning in 2010 and renewed again years later. Data furthermore about a crucial topic that has barely been studied scientifically despite its glaringly obvious relevance to American public and political life, namely secularism, understood here finally not as a monolith to which the religious react but as an attractive and plausible option for Americans who are not merely turned off by the religious right, as many of the nuns are, but who are attracted to the positive content, as it were, of the secular worldview, its beliefs, practices, public rituals, and range of political implications. In short, our authors study secularism not merely as the absence of religiosity, as I think both of them indicated, they focus on what people are rather than what they are not, merely non-religious. This secular option 
our authors labor to point out, is not monolithic, but rather myriad in content, tone, and intensity of expression. There are secular options in this sense, though the fundamental dogmas of this new increasingly popular pseudo-religion, to use Tillich's notion of a movement that demands something like absolute devotion without delivering an absolute end, this, this, uh, these dogmas uh, that are held are a bedrock underlying all the variations of expression and intensity. The book's structure and narrative strategy merit notice. By disclosing and explaining their findings while regularly pausing to explicate the methods they employed to elicit these findings, the authors keep themselves and us honest as they dig deeply into the beliefs and attitudes, political orientation, and affiliations of people who are not merely non-religious, many of the non-religious are indifferent, but also ripe for the plucking by both sides, not only non-religious, but actively secular. Those, that is, whose statements of conviction alongside their social, economic, and educational profiles allow the authors to develop a personal secularism index in the book. Among the many virtues of the gathering of data by means of informed questions is the creation of analytically precise and defensible categories. Here again, those lovely two-by-two two tables that do help us to understand how the merely non-religious, including the nuns, are different from both religionists and secularists and from those fascinating and statistically quite significant religious secularists who combine a scientific, evidence-based worldview with a religious belief in practice. Please raise your hand if you belong to our church. Jeff and I have already raised our hands. There is much more to say, of course, about the findings from the SAS surveys and the data and analyses from other studies which the authors use. But it is a rich menu of insights indeed. Now, briefly, the question about methods, which can be boiled down to my skepticism first about your heavy reliance on the American Humanist Association, the AHA, and the expression of pure undistilled secularism and its expression of pure undistilled secularism. And second, and more generally, my skepticism about, or my question, I should say, about your choice to define both secularity and religiosity by their ideal types, namely by the AHA standards on the one hand and the religious right on the other. Pardon this uh, formulation, but should the extremes prevail in defining religion or secularism? Should the extremes prevail? All the shades in between, including the good old religious seculars, are therefore evaluated according to the orientation they share only in part and to varying degrees, while also rejecting some core elements of both extremes. And you make this clear. You know, you it's clear that this is the case. But why not, in defining secularism or religion, head to the middle for your conceptual anchor and then define outward, as it were? I hope that question makes sense. What are you missing by this particular choice to start at the ends of the spectrum or the extremes, as I put it? For example, what if American secularism turns out to be an amalgam of scientific naturalism and theism? I'm racing now, so I hope the question is clear. But I will refer you to the most marked up passage in my copy of the book, pages 28 through 30, where you set forth your method for establishing the secularism index. Finally, a conjecture and a word in defense of conjecture. There is a bit of hubris in all of this, especially in writing a book that makes bold and new claims, hallelujah, and plaudits to you for doing so. 
and certainly when writing an unintentionally comical response like this one. Hubert's comes out everywhere. Yours comes across as a little bit of a swaggering announcement that now we have the, the data. Enough of conjecture. There's even a line in the book about that. All right, everybody before us, stand back. We've got the data. As if none of, I know you didn't mean this way because you draw on these qualitative studies and I'm being playful here mostly, but as if, <laughs> playful with a point, as if none of these previous studies from non-social scientists, but who of course attended to and draw upon social sciences in their grand philosophical and historical analyses of secularism and religion have quite, you know, kind of made the case as if they haven't done that. And I say this to, to conclude with this. Um, and this is, of course, an unfair critique, but why not? But when grappling with religion, as you, we, as we all well know, and certainly even its public and political impact, there is this element which you mention in the book, but necess necessarily exclude from the analysis, namely what you call the supernatural, the old joke, it's always bad to invoke Woody Allen, but I can't ever forget the little joke where he said, I, I, um, I flunked my philosophy class. Why? I cheated on the metaphysics exam. I looked into the soul of the person next to me. <laughs> you know, you can't really do that. You can't really measure the soul of the supernatural empirically. I get that. But this is this kind of un unimportant, inexplicable, but very important factor. Um, and... Uh, even defining factor, not just to the religionist, but to the religious secularist, and even potentially to the wandering nuns, should the Lord return on clouds of glory, awakening them, for their, awakening them from their dogmatic slumbers, and reminding them why they were once religious in the first place, namely, that unmeasurable feeling in Schleiermacher's sense that there is something more and that it is awesome. Psychology can help us understand this element here to a degree, this element of religiosity and secularism that we can't quite measure um, as long as psychology is not reductionist. But the history of religion in America remains checkered, nonetheless, with the inexplicable, with stunning and unpredictable revivals and great awakenings and remarkable resilience of ways of religiously grounded immigrants who, against all odds and much persecution, made it and transform the religious and political landscape over a generation or more. These are largely matters of the spirit, or partly at least matters of the spirit, but not inconsequential for all that. Conjecture, as it were, has a place. Who can predict when this sagging nation may experience an unexpected spiritual and civic revival from whatever direction? Your book suggests, but wisely does not predict, that it may more likely, that is more likely to be a secular surge. We shall see. In any case, thank you, David, Jeff, and John, for this remarkable book, which is obviously stimulating for me, if not always in the direction you intended. <laughs> Hello, can everyone hear me? Okay, wonderful. Secular Surge is a powerful book written in a riveting style, it makes a persuasive case that explicitly secular political movements and identities have grown more salient and influential in US politics in reaction to the rise of the religious right as a powerful voting and lobbying bloc within the Republican Party since the Reagan administration of the 1980s. 
Campbell, Lehman, and Green should be applauded for having the foresight to study this vital yet largely uncharted territory in American political science. By developing this project a decade ago and running a series of surveys with the American Humanist Association and other groups in order to test their hypothesis that personal secular political identities have become more salient in US politics in dynamic and conflictive relation to the rise of the religious right. What I found most compelling was the way that the authors pointed toward the potentially devastating political implications of this transformation of our party system and the way it aligns with conflicting public attitudes towards the separation of church and state, a fundamental principle of the US Constitution. Campbell, Lehman, and Green argue that the secular surge, quote, has the capacity to deepen an existing political fault line in American politics between religionists and secularists. Such an extension of conflict could well intensify the high level of polarization in the United States. One result of these shifts and tensions might be the transformation of American politics into a confessional party system. In confessional party systems, they add, some or all political parties are organized around religion or secularism. This would mean a religious Republican party, meaning religionists of all kinds being Republican, and a secular Democratic party, secularists and most non-religionists being Democrat. Perhaps with, with religious secularists representing a new kind of swing voter. For a feminist political theorist, this is a terrifying or dystopian vision of what, of what American politics could become in the near future. A kind of reboot of the early modern European wars over religion, but with the lines drawn on the battlefield over conflicting attitudes toward religion and secularism. What's perhaps morbidly fascinating to me as a scholar of feminist political science fiction, from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and The Last Man, to Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale series, to Octavia Butler's Parable series, is to see how women writers of science fiction have long predicted that these very divisive patterns of religious versus secular political conflict would arise in North American and other European societies in the 21st century to the point of establishing dangerously uncivil confessional party systems that threaten the continuance of democracy itself. Octavia Butler's political science fiction even seems to have anticipated the invasive strain of right-wing patriarchal populism led by Donald Trump and nefariously supported by the religious right as well as the non-religious. In her 1998 novel, Parable of the Talents, Butler described the rise of a religious populist patriarch in the 2030s United States the head of a social movement and party known as Christian America, who pledges to his followers to make America great again. A young black woman, Olamina, develops a countercultural religious vision in society that uses science, medicine, and a new kind of secular quasi-Spinozan environmentalist spirituality to fight the growing dominance of the fundamentalist, racist, and violent Christian America party. Scholars agree that Butler wrote in, wrote in the science fiction and horror tradition of Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein. I would add that Butler must have also taken inspiration from Shelley's 1826 global pandemic novel, The Last Man, especially Shelley's gothic vision of the imposter prophet who wants to be remembered by the post-pestilential race as a patriarch, a prophet, nay, a deity. This Methodist or evangelizing Christian preacher leads the apocalyptic plague cult that falsely promises immunity to members in return for their religious worship of his growing authoritarian political power. Shelley's imposter prophet may have been a commentary on an evangelical American itinerant Methodist minister, Lorenzo Dow, or those like him in early 19th century Ireland and England. 
Dow appealed to the Book of Revelation on the title page of his 1812 sermon, A Journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, calling for my people to escape her sins, lest ye be partakers of her plagues. A reader of the post-apocalyptic fiction of both Shelley and Butler, Margaret Atwood composed her Mad Adams series, Oryx and Crake, published in 2003, Year of the Flood, published in 2009, and Mad Adam, published in 2013, with many of the structural elements and themes of their futuristic plague novels. Putting an explicitly feminist twist on the last man narratives of Shelley and Butler, the Year of the Flood takes place in the immediate aftermath of a bioengineered plague made by a misanthropic young male scientist reminiscent of Victor Frankenstein that seems to have wiped out all but two female human survivors. When they were young and even more vulnerable without means of supporting themselves independently in their sexually violent, sexually violent male-dominated, and increasingly anarchistic society, Toby and Wren were forced to join a green back-to-the-earth apocalyptic plague cult founded by a charismatic patriarch named Adam One. Although Adam One originally imposes a strict vegan lifestyle upon his followers, he ultimately uses his self-made and self-aggrandizing religion to justify cannibalism of his own tribe, even a religious obligation to sacrifice our own protein when the plague that he prophesizes arrives and brings the survivors to the edge of starvation. The predicament of the women in the year of the flood recalls the harrowing story of Atwood's most famous feminist political science fiction. Her 1985 novel, The Handmaid's Tale, unfolds the story of Offred, a woman who has been forced to serve as a sexual surrogate or handmaid for a military commander and his wife. The white supremacist theocratic regime, Gilead, arose after a fundamentalist, fundamentalist Christian terrorist organization staged a, success, a successful coup of the northeastern United States in the wake of a series of epidemic crises of sexually transmitted disease and toxic contamination of the environment that caused widespread depopulation, infertility, and birth defects. A segregated society, Gilead purges black and gay people and sends dissidents, mainly women, to work in colonies where they die from exposure to toxic waste and pollution. Taking place around the year 2005, The Handmaid's Tale provides a prescient commentary on 21st century America's ongoing political failure to care for people of color and protect their rights to life and health. Akin to laborers in Gilead's colonies, black, Hispanic, and Latinx people are 2.8 times more likely to die after contracting COVID-19 than their white counterparts in the US, in large part because of underlying health conditions derived from their experience of economic and political inequality. Dressed in red robes and white Puritan hats, the still fertile handmaids of Gilead have neither rights over their own bodies nor rights to parent the children they bear for the patriarchs who rape them under the watchful eyes of their wives. Since the 2016 election of Donald Trump, feminist activists around the world have donned handmade costumes to protest the 45th American president's public history of misogynist prejudice and sexual harassment of women, and his administration's attempts to use its influence in the Republican Senate and the conservative Supreme Court to precipitate backsliding on women's civil and human rights, especially to reproductive freedom and health care. As if the partisan counterscript was also ripped straight from the pages of The Handmaid's Tale, the coronavirus infected President Trump used and championed remdesivir, an antiviral drug made by the Gilead Corporation, just after the <laughs> September release of the results of the World Health Organization-sponsored human trials demonstrated that it had no effect on either the recovery or the mortality of COVID-19 patients. Atwood, Butler, and Shelley's works of modern political modern feminist political science fiction are seemingly clairvoyant. 
not because of any supernatural powers of the authors, but rather because of their studied attention to the wisdom of plague literature of the past, the lessons of epidemic history, the political dynamics of patriarchy, divisive religiously inflected politics, and populism. The expressly historical basis for their political science fictions gave these women writers the ostensibly prophetic ability to make probable conjectures about gendered patterns of politics that have proven to be remarkably accurate for our presidential election and plague year of 2020 to 2021. Shelley Butler and Atwood share a special concern for women and the negative impacts of patriarchy, populism, and a religious extremism upon their freedom and happiness, especially in times of health or environmental crisis. Their women-centered interpretive lenses led them to theorize the political interconnections between male domination, democratic backsliding, rising authoritarianism, and human-exacerbated epidemics of poor health, mass death, and other vicious social contagions. Although we, have, although we have observed some of these disturbing patterns unfold during the COVID-19 pandemic, we should follow Atwood and the political scientists Amy Atchison and Shauna Shames in remembering that fictional dystopias serve as a warning of what to avoid if we want to preserve democracy and equal rights and liberties for each and all. By looking back to the political science fictions of Shelley Butler and Atwood, we gain a historical perspective of what needs defending and protecting in order to, further in, or in order to prevent further backsliding into destructive patterns of patriarchy, authoritarianism, religiously inflected conflict, and democratic, and democratic corruption. As a divisive confessional party system begins to take shape quite ominously in our 21st century American society. Thank you. I will uh, clean us up here. Uh, thank you all for the comments, and thank you for uh, Professor Munoz and the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government for hosting us. Um, it's an honor to be here as a younger, a much younger scholar of religion, <laughs> religion and politics. Uh, I've long looked up to the aging uh, Campbell and Lehman, and um, so it's an honor to be here to to. Uh, discuss this important book, as, as everyone has said. Um, it really is an important book. I would say like the rise of disaffiliation and non-religion and secularism in, in American politics, it, along with sort of the rise of the Christian right uh, four decades ago, is one of the, the two big stories. And perhaps they are linked and connected, I think, as, as you all make the case and have been making that case for a while. And this is certainly, I would say, the definitive political behavior treatment of sort of this rise of non-religion. And the, the, the two by two, we made a lot of jokes about the two by two table, but I think that takeaway is going to remain very important, right? Emphasizing there are multiple components of non-religion, whether it's disaffiliation or secularism, right? Like having the secular worldview. And um, that I think those are gonna stick with us uh, as scholars. And especially I think it's important to think through like how these fit differently in the political landscape, right? Um, and I, we, we, didn't, we haven't talked a lot about the idea of sort of how like the civic culture of, that varies based on sort of the non-religionist or the secularist. And I think these takeaways are going to be really important as we, we move forward. I'll just comment briefly. I think the book is readable and approachable. Uh, it includes like nine data sets. It takes like two pages to describe what they are um, in a, in a, in a, in a, a non-two-by-two table. But they manage, I think, really well to describe those, those data sources and walk through that in the first half, particularly, I think, as you lay out sort of the, the theory and the rationale for looking at secularism in two different uh, modalities is, is really well done. And so I, I would point people to thinking about that. 
I want to give a few comments basically like how I think this work would make us uh, think more about the study of religion and politics in America and what we can draw on and maybe some questions I left thinking about and then uh, look forward to you all's comments and questions. But certainly this idea of having multiple measurement strategies for the study of sort of non-religion, disaffiliation, and secularism is one of, one of the key takeaways. And I think people who do survey research on religion and politics are going to draw on that a good bit. For those of you who have some familiarity, uh, we often think when we study religion of these kind of this idea of like believing, behaving, and belonging, we call sometimes we call these the three Bs of sort of religion and, and politics. And I think in some sense, these secularism components mirror that. Um, and the way they measure those. And so I think we, many people will take those on and uh, do work and refine and ask more questions. I think that's going to be really useful. I like how they embed some of these questions into these surveys of the American Humanist, Humanist Association to sort of verify their sort of veracity. That's like, I said the same word twice. But anyway, to verify these things. And, and I think it'll be really important going forward to continually examine the contextual effects of, of these beliefs. We have, we have similar thoughts on religion, how religious beliefs um, that the contextual and local uh, factors may uh, be really important. So I, I, I think scholars will continue to push on this, right, and see. Because I think one of the things that you all show, which is it's really useful, is that the people with this secular worldview, they actually have more civic involvement, especially political involvement, than we often used to think about the, those who are disconnected from religion. I think the typical not uh, thought among many was that those who were non-religious lost some of these civic connectors, and so it made them less likely to be engaged in politics. And so their political views started, like, sort of let, went under the in the shadows, right, left unknown. But I think we're coming to find out that, especially in politics, the, the secularists and the uh, two by two table are much more active. And so um, that I think is going to lead to a lot of study, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing where, where that goes. The other thing I really like is this idea of worldview. And I think we get worldview a bit in some sociological literature. We get some more studies of secularism in sociological literature than we do in political behavior. But um, so bringing the, this conception of worldview more uh, into American politics, I think, would be really useful. And, uh, and so I, I think we will hopefully see more people sort of pushing on those angles about this sort of, you know, you're talking about the secular worldview, but then I think there certainly are other types of worldviews that might be at play. Related to this, um, there's this question, I think, uh, when we study religion and politics, it's like, which way does this causal arrow go, right? Is it, and, uh, and you all have been involved in this for a while, and the book, I think, hits at some of these debates, but the traditional way was that your sort of religion was more foundational than your politics, so it influenced your politics, and there's been sort of this revision of scholarship to say, no, no, our partisan identity and our political views are so powerful that they are altering our religious views. And yet, and you all have, and you all have been part of this, but yet at the same time, I think I read this book and say like, those, like the secular, the committed secularists seem to have views that are, that are consistent outside of the politics. They are not as politically um, altered as some, as some others. And so we, I think it's causing us to live in this tension. I think so, so much of the scholarship lately, I think has said, okay, politics is going to matter more than religion. It's driving the bus, right? But I think you're pushing us to say, like, well, there are real pockets of places where the religious or the non-religious views matter. And we should not forget that. I think it's easy to kind of get caught up in the, in, on this revisionist train. And so um, I took a bit of that as, as um, causing some, uh, bringing some caution, I think. While at the same time, you show 
politics is related, perhaps, or uh, is related certainly to disaffiliation, right, and re reduction of identity and those kind of things. One of the big questions I have, I think, and, and I mean brought up too, is like, what's the future of political parties from this? And I think it certainly speaks to sort of, I think, some changing party dynamics, especially how the politics of religion plays out into the changing party, party dynamics. And I think in some sense the styles of how we think about parties may be changing, and that's something we should pay a lot of attention to. I mean, there is one sort of one prominent theory that the Democrats are more about this collection of groups, and, and, and the seculars are among that collection of group, and they struggle to, to mediate those. And then the Republicans are, are you know, they're, they're about ideas, right? But the secularists in your, in your studies are very strong, have strong opinions that are not moved, and they are not as into compromise. They're ascendant in the grassroots activism of the Democratic Party. Does that make, does it draw the center of gravity of the Democratic Party towards more consistent ideas and less about these group dynamics? Will that, will that move? Um, and at the same time, the Republicans are fighting, in some sense, it seems, these uh, different groups on the, that have different views, especially on racial views that you, you, you see among the, the non-religious non-religionists on the Republican side, I think that you're showing with the Trump graph. And so what are those pressures going to do to how we think about party politics? Um, I think certainly as the rise of the um, seculars in the Democratic Party, Republicans have gotten a good bit of the blame for, uh, rightly so, for polari the polarization in America. And does that, does that mean that there will be a sort of move, a leftward push on the polarizing impulses in the parties? And so I think a lot of th these sorts of things um, I'm left thinking about. In many ways, you mentioned this as sort of this mirror image of the, the Christian right. And I think in some sense we, should, we could study seculars and secular activism in the parties like we would think about going back and studying the Christian right in the sense of like there are, there's political activism, there's uh, ideological commitment and grassroots commitment. They're, they are having to make their way into a party culture that doesn't necessarily always like what they're bringing. And yet, in many ways, the Christian right has captured a good bit in the last 30 years of the Republican Party. And so what, would we see some of that happen? Will we see a forging of a common identity across the Democratic Party that's led by a secular coalition? And what's the future of that? A couple of questions that I wanted, I hope, to point uh, or I hope to hear from you on is two things. One, what's the role of race? I think the role of race is probably a little underplayed, especially on the front half. It shows up a bit in the end, the last third of the book, about how these groups, on the, especially on the Democratic side, have to deal with the religionists of the African Americans and some Hispanic Democrats. But I'm curious more about the role of race here in the secular surge. Is it primarily, especially secularism, is, uh, seems more of a white political movement? And then how does the role of, the ra of race on the Republican side lead to sort of a backlash of secularism and disaffiliation um, on the left? And so I, I would have liked to see, I'd like to see a bit more on, on race. The other thing that I thought was curious is sort of this idea of re religious groupings. When we study religion and politics, we often think about different religious traditions. And now it's like the groupings are religious and secular, right? Or the two by two table, you might say. Are we in a new era where the, where the old sort of religious families are matter less, or maybe the old uh, culture war era of 
you know, thinking about someone like uh, the, the idea of like orthodoxy and progressivism used to be sort of one of the major culture war divides. Now is it secularism and re religionism, or, you know, uh, religionists? Are, are we, should we have to rethink the way some of these cultural battles get fought? And then finally for uh, Professor Campbell, his, uh, his redacted Wilson award-winning book, American Grace, I, I, I took away uh, from that book, I think a positive, a positive role of the sort of, the, of a religion in American politics that, the, that we have a lot of religion dif religious difference, and yet we've overcome that, and uh, we have learned to live together, right? And yet, with the secular surge, I, I don't have this positive outlook anymore. About, you know, I, and so I'm curious. That's because Jeff Lehman is no Bob Putnam. That's <laughs> here, here. Uh, anyway, um, I'm curious in the last decade, would you think about the themes of that book differently based on uh, this book in front of us? And I know uh, Professor Lehman has a chair up department meeting soon, so I'll end there. I will note that the aging layman asked the young Lewis if he would like to play basketball this morning, and, and that, was, that was denied. Um, I, I, these are really great comments, and I, I think Scott and Eileen and Andy for them. Um, I don't want to take up too much time because I know people have been waiting patiently for, for an hour here. Uh, I, I'll just quickly say um, I never thought about this as a horror book, Eileen, but now you uh, <laughs> there may, Dystopia. There may be, Dystopia, there may be yeah. movie rights. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think what all three of you say you know, to some, to some extent highlights the, the potential damage and, and horror, um, if, if you believe in democracy, of, of a confessional party system. And Scott talked about uh, the extremes and why don't we think about the middle. And, and Eileen talked about the, the, the deep, um, deeply problematic nature of a confessional party system. And, and Andy talks about the the, the sort of new culture wars of instead of having different religious families and denominations and traditions, we have this sort of bipolar world. Um, and, and I think that is a big concern. And I, I think that plays out every day in America in the, in the culture war over COVID. You have true believers who cannot understand the other side. I think Scott makes a good point about let's look to the middle and then move outward. But the problem is, at least in public American society that we see through the media and, and through public conversations, the, the middle is lost. Um, and I, I think the supernatural point, and this is also, that's a very deep point that I'm just gonna respond to extraordinarily superficially, but I, I think for many Americans, religion, the supernatural element of religion has been lost. Um, and religion has become more of a political identity. Mm -hmm. um, I think many Americans see um, 
for example, evangelicalism as a political identity, equating um, even evangelical Christianity with the Republican Party, and, and perhaps increasingly, at least uh, conservative Catholicism with the Republican Party. And the supernatural has been lost for a lot of Americans who are either non-religious or perhaps nominally religious. And, and what's left for them is this sort of very politically laden identity. Um, and, and that's not good for religious, probably not good for politics. Um, let me just briefly say, because I could not possibly comment on everything that's been said, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, it really has been mind opening. This is fascinating to have your work discussed by people who come at it from different angles. But if I could just maybe briefly comment on um, Andy's very profound question about a previous work of mine. So just back up a little bit. Um, about a decade ago, uh, Robert Putnam and I published a book called American Grace, How, America, how Religion um, Divides and Unites Us. And we were very deliberate in the subtitle. We wanted to end on unite because the basic theme of American Grace, as Andy alluded to, is that America has this remarkably religiously diverse society, and yet somehow we've managed to make it work. And Andy now raises the question, so where's American grace in this book, right? You're just telling me that the religious secular divide is, is pulling us apart. And to some extent, that's true. I will say that is absolutely true. Um, I'm a lot less optimistic now than I was a decade ago about the nature of religion and its place in American um, society. However, and I'll just briefly note this, we do in the book hold out hope that there, there is an alternative universe out there um, where it is not absolutely inconceivable to imagine that we would not be completely riven by a religious secular divide in our politics. What if instead of religious people going to one party and secular people going to a, another party, um, the parties actually figured out a way to combine those two worldviews in ways that were appealing to build a co coalition along religious secular lines. Unless you think that is a crazy idea, I actually think we have seen recent examples in the Democratic Party of people who were able to do that. I think actually the Obama coalition did actually um, pull that off. Secularism wasn't quite the force then that it is now, but it does suggest that at least on one side of the aisle um, that's possible. And it's not like there are no secularists in the Republican Party, so there's some incentive for them to think about it too. A lot of libertarians are actually secularists, so if they're going to stay in the Republican tent, there needs to be some way to sort of make that work within the so maybe it's not quite as dismal as we may have suggested, but it's pretty dismal. <laughs> if there was ever a president who was a religious secularist, it's probably our present one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, now that we've ended on not necessarily purely miserable, uh, let's have a few questions. Uh, we'd like to start with a question from an undergrad, if there is one. No, I'll take a grad student. If I There we go, yes. Um, and I'll be... Uh, disinfecting as I hand this out in at least a performative effort to uh, address COVID. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my main question was just basically in regards to this book, how do you think this book might affect certain campaign efforts of political leaders? Well, first of all, we hope they all buy it <laughs> and talk about it. Um, uh, that's a very profound question. I would say that um, while we did not write this as the sort of book that might be you know, a guide to political campaigns, I think we do hint at that. 
Um, and we do suggest that, particularly on the left, there are ways, perhaps, to bring the secularist and the religionist wings of the Democratic Party together. I, I alluded to that just now. Um, but specifically, what we mean by that is most of the policy positions that you find among secularists um, are not intrinsically secular positions. Um, in other words, debates over the separation of church and state are not necessarily what drives them. It might be issues like racial justice or environmentalism, um, that kind of thing. And there is hope, actually, that you could bring, at least on the left, religious people and secular people together around those kinds of issues. So there's a little bit of that in the book. They could potentially use it as a guide. I also think, that, you know, I think the task, that's a really good question, Mackenzie. Um, the task is more difficult for Democrats. There is more religious slash secular diversity um, within the Democratic Party. But um, the, the task is different for Republicans. I, I, I think there seems to be little evidence right now of white evangelicals moving away from the Republican Party. So I don't want to play this up too much. But... Um, there is some evidence. Levi Allen in the back is, is a dissertation student of, of ours and um, is finding at least at the, the micro level that many evangelicals are now, are people we would have thought of as evangelicals, are shying away from the evangelical label because they don't like the fact that evangelical equals Trump supporter and that's how it's become defined. And so I think um, Republican campaigns maybe if you went back and looked at, at current campaigns versus the Reagan era, the way in which Republicans are appealing to religious people is very different. Um, and it may be turning away um, some religious people as a, a relatively non-religious base um, of the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party be becomes more ascendant. Um, and so the, you know, there may be some tension for Republican campaigns about how to appeal to uh, Trumpists versus, um, you know, deeply devout religionists. Hello, my name is Zef Cernkovich. I'm a senior in the Tocqueville Fellow Program. Um, the panel's mentioned a couple times now, you know, the Christian right, and you just mentioned evangelicalism. And kind of my question is, I'm curious whether you, th whether it, there, within the religionists, it would be worth examining, you know, the different religions and whether there's a um, significant breakdown among different religions and the, you know, you had like liberal ideology and the vote and all these kind of bar graphs and whether that also has some meaning. Th thank you. That's a really good question. I, I guess the answer is we've spent many decades in our careers doing just that. Uh, we, we don't do it in this book, and it caused all of us some tension to kind of lump religionists together. Uh, for analytical purposes, it was necessary, but, but all three of us, maybe John Green especially, have sort of led the charge to we can't think of religion as a, uh, a unidimensional thing. It is multidimensional. And, you, and um, Catholic conservatives and evangelical conservatives are not the same, and mainline Protestants and evangelical Protestants are not the same, and black evangelicals and white evangelicals sure as heck aren't the same. So I, I think that's exactly right. Um, we ourselves um, have done lots of research on that, but we, we should continue to think about that, particularly as we become, sort of live in this bipolar religious versus secular world, do 
is it really legitimate to start lumping traditionalist Catholics and white evangelicals together, or is that still as, as bad an idea today as we thought it was 10, 20 years ago? So that's a great question. My name is Patrick Amney. I'm an undergraduate student. Um, I'm wondering, especially, so at points in Secular Surge, it seems like the positions of uh, people within these camps on issues that one might consider pertaining to religion or secularism doesn't quite line up with what their identities are. For example, questions about religious accommodation often have more to do with whether or not you're asking about a healthcare provider and abortion, or you're asking about uh, a Muslim and wearing, um, you know, wearing articles of religious clothing and a driver's license photo, that sort of thing. And so my question is, how do you think, or do you think that the import of investigations of this nature is limited if you can't draw a straight line between people's religious or secular identity and their positions on questions that we might consider or we might anticipate would be relevant to this identity? Thank you, Patrick. I should note that um, Patrick knows this book well because he was compelled to read it in a course he took for me in the last spring. Um, so that's a very... Uh, and now he's question. using that against you. Yes. Um, so Patrick has posed a provocative question, which is um, if there really is a religious-secular divide in the United States, why isn't, the, why isn't it the case that religious and secular people um, why, why don't they always disagree on, on basically questions about, loosely speaking, the separation of church and state or free exercise and establishment clause questions? And I, I would actually turn that back and say, um, I wouldn't necessarily expect that. And so what we actually find is when it comes to questions about religious establishment, so questions about Ten Commandments monuments on public property or school prayer, um, there there is a, a big divide. So secularists are not interested in religious establishment at all. And that's what we would expect. However, when we get to religious free exercise, the story is far more complicated because it depends on the type of religious free exercise. If you ask questions about sort of the old way we thought about free exercise, which was typically small religions, I don't really want to say minority religions because all religions in America are a minority, but uh, smallish religions, Muslims, Sikhs, um, Orthodox Jews, etc. Um, whether or not they would be permitted to exercise their religion freely in the public square. Um, for groups like that, secularists are fine with religious expression. They're, they're, they're fine with Muslims wearing the, the, the veil in public schools, and they're fine with Muslims um, covering their faces for driver's license photos, and those, those are the kind of questions that we've asked. But when we define religious free exercise in what we might call the new way of, uh, for example, denying service to LGBTQ couples for same-sex weddings, for example, um, there you do not find much sympathy on the part of secularists toward that version of really religious free exercise. It's probably not surprising if you think of their partisan profile. But I wouldn't say that that calls into question our measures. I would say that just sort of illustrates why it's interesting to study this stuff. Because we should remember that it's not always been the case that the strict separation of church and state was a position taken by only secular people or only religious people. That actually, it used to be that the strict separation of, religious and, strict separation of church and state, that was the religious position. That's what the Baptists took. Right? That was, that was their, their belief, and that sort of changed over time, but there's sort of vestiges of that still in American public opinion. 
I, I just want to add that um, I recently read an Atlantic piece by a guy named Andy Lewis um, uh, on, on how, on this, I, I recommend the piece, but, but the story is the, the 1993 Religious, Restoration, Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, in response to the Supreme Court decision um, was very bipartisan. And now um, religious freedom um, has become much more religiously and politically polarized. So re read Andy's piece. Please. Unfortunately, with age does not come brevity. So we are going to have to make this our last question. Uh, and then we'll have a gift. Hey, professors. Uh, I'm Blake Ziegler. Uh, I've had both of y'all as, as uh, in classes before. Um, one thing that I found interesting with the amazing two-by-two two graph is you alluded that it's hard to describe where the secularists end up on a Sunday morning. And I was wondering for the Democratic Party if that poses an organizational problem for how like a secularist might rise to greater like strength in the Democratic Party. And I was just wondering how you might see the organization of secularists become more prominent. I'm going to be very brief because Matt Hall has um, <laughs> called me out on that. Um, that's a great question. It's a fundamental problem for the, the Democratic Party and, and a fundamental problem for a secularist movement. There, there is evidence of increasing uh, organization and congregation of secularists. There are secular churches. There are organizations in larger cities. Our efforts to organize and come together on Sunday mornings, efforts to form organizations, the Secular Student Alliance, the Secular Coalition for America. Um, so, so there are efforts in this regard. Secularism is never going to look anything like religion in terms of having thousands, hundreds or thousands of people congregated together in a single building, um, ready to write checks uh, on a particular day of the week. Um, but there are efforts in that regard, and the more such efforts there are, I think the more you will see Democratic candidates more overtly appealing to secularists. Right now, when you have the opportunity to go into an African-American church, and have that sort of captive audience versus this amorphous group of secularists, we know who's going to win. And so in order for secularists, I think, to be uh, represented uh, as, as they should be given their numbers, I think they will have to start organizing and congregating. What he said. All right, uh, I think before, as we wrap up here, we have a gift uh, for the authors. The purpose of today is uh, not only to... Uh... Well, just one editorial comment. I think you underestimate the power of avocado toast gathering on Sunday mornings. But um, uh, the purpose of today is not only to learn from our colleagues, but also to congratulate them. I mean, as the, as the panelists said, it really is a terrific book. So we have a little, this, we have two of these, one for oh, Jeff and uh, one for Dave. So. Thank you, today. And, and thank you, everyone. But please, uh, thank, uh, with me, thank our panelists. <laughs>